Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hey, everyone. Tom Salemi here. Welcome back to the OIS Podcast. One of the highlights of the OIS at AAO event is the year in review presentation by Emmett Cunningham, co-chair of OIS and managing director at Claris Funds. Emmett uh, gives a terrific overview of ophthalmology. It's one that uh, we make available on OIS.net. There's a video up there right now of his presentation. But Emmett doesn't stop at the uh, the presentation uh, that he gives on the day. Emmett, like everyone else at OIS, is, is held to a time limit. And he adheres to that, but he knows there's uh, there's more information he'd like to, to share. So he's expanded the uh, year in review presentation, and we're making that available to you. Emma and I are going to talk about that in this podcast and next week's podcast as well. We're going to go over his uh, observations about ophthalmology. You'll also be able to download the extended PowerPoint presentation from uh, the podcast page, also ois.net, and we'll also make a link available on the OIS Weekly Newsletter. So many ways to get this important information, and uh, Emmett will uh, will walk us through it. You won't be able to review it slide by slide, but it's a, it's a great overall summary. There's lots to talk about. That's why we're giving it two podcasts. And then, of course, you'll have the presentation yourself for you to review at your leisure. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Emmett Cunningham, co-chair of OIS. Well, Emmett Cunningham, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Nice to chat with you. You too. And it was great to see you at OIS at AAO. And uh, all the reviews that have come in have been uh, exceedingly positive. People seem very happy about the day, about the, the breadth of uh, the conversation, uh, the depth. And and we can look at the numbers. I mean, the, the ballroom, I think, was literally packed. Uh, what was your uh, your takeaway from the day? I think we were all happy with it. It was our biggest meeting, as you as you indicated, and had a great energy. And we touched on, I think, many of the timely topics in the space. So I, I was very happy with it. Excellent. Well, we'll be releasing content from the day, including the company presentations. But uh, let's get into uh, your, uh, your lead-off presentation, which people uh, are always eager to see. And uh, We'll be making available on this uh, podcast. We'll uh, provide a link on our website and uh, and in our email so people can download this PowerPoint. They may not be able to follow along as we go over parts of it, but uh, certainly they can try and they can follow up later on. But as as everything, I think, with uh, with life sciences, with drugs and devices, it kind of begins and ends, it seems, with the FDA. And I know you, uh, you started off uh, looking at the agency and, and seeing how ophthalmology has fared. Uh, over the past year, it's, uh, it hasn't been the best of years. What, what was your takeaway? Uh, so on the drug side, I, I think the good news is that we have an FDA director, Scott Gottlieb, who seems to be at least saying all the right things and se- seems to be promoting accelerated review and, and we hope more approval of uh, even better drugs. And, and we've clearly been seeing that in some sectors like Hemonc and, and in the rare and orphan approvals. I, I highlight that in the expanded deck, which people can download on this podcast. Um, on the ophthalmology side, uh, unfortunately, we've seen what appears to be a slowdown over the last six years in approvals, and it's always difficult in a post hoc way to, to know why that occurred. That it is, I think, noteworthy that it happened. The coincidence was with uh, a reorg in that division, the ophthalmic, so-called ophthalmic division, 
where now we have a non-ophthalmologist uh, director who appears to be sort of requiring or requesting more to get to IND, especially on the toxicology side. So um, it's slower. That seems to be clear. And, and uh, the requests are often requests that were not historically made of people advancing to IND. And so the point I made in my presentation was to work closely with the, the group there to, to make sure you get them what they want and you don't have to go back and redo or delay. The other point that uh, even for the, those that have advanced into the clinic, we, we I think what I was told uh, from some of the people I spoke with while preparing this was that there were 12 complete response letters that, that we were aware of. Not all companies release them when they get them and are they're not required to release them. And um, the FDA does not release them, so we only know what the companies tell us. But of those 12, about five were related to CMC or manufacturing and that what often happens there is that a company, because of financial constraints, will have one manufacturer, and if that manufacturer has issues, then there's a big delay in approval. So as it is affordable and possible, many people recommend having two, two CMC sources. Is there any reason that would be unique to ophthalmology? Do you think this is a broader issue? I think it's a broader issue. I don't think it's unique to ophthalmology. And uh, the, um, the FDA has stated as much um, from much higher levels than the ophthalmology division. Well, we did have some, some good news, and we've had some approvals. Uh, of, of the uh, approvals we had in the past year, which ones, uh, which ones stand out for you? Uh, so there were, there were uh, two approvals that made it in uh, just in time for OIS. One was a modified atropine. Uh, sulfate um, ophthalmic solution, and the other was uh, cetrazine hydrochloride for um, allergic conjunctivitis. Uh, cetrazine, or Zerviate, I, I think is noteworthy in that it's a new chemical entity for this common condition, allergic conjunctivitis and ocular itch. Uh, it is going to go into a pretty crowded market, and so you know how it will fare is unknown, but I think it's nice, always nice to have another treatment option. And we also have, as the first sort of new chemical entity to treat uh, elevated intraocular pressure, we have uh, Visalta, which is coming from Bosch and Lohmann Nicox. And that was one where we know there were CMC issues related to um, to uh, approval and complete response letters. It took them a long time to get that approved, but we have it now approved. And that'll be, as I said, the first new um, NCE for um, pressure reduction. That's what came through the ophthalmic division. What I'm most, what I think was most impressive from at least a top-line efficacy um, perspective was Genentech's anti-IL-6 receptor, uh, tocilizumab or Actemra. That that they studied in giant cell arteritis, which is a an, an arteritis, as the name suggests, that often affects the large artery that comes through the optic nerve, and so you get optic neuritis or an optic neuropathy. Uh, and the impressive thing there was that it, it allowed for a much higher remission rate, which is which we define as uh, sort of going off, being able to go off of medications. It was you know, over 50% versus roughly about 18, 20% for the standard of care, which is corticosteroids. So that's a big delta, and I think a very meaningful advance in the therapy for that condition, which often affects ophthalmology. It did not come through the ophthalmic division, I, uh, but it, uh, it was a very important approval, I think, for Genentech and for patients. We have some uh, some key PDUFA dates coming up, both for ARI and for, for SPARC. And I know uh, SPARC and, and gene therapy in general was uh, was a, one of the major issues talked about in the uh, the discussion after the presentations, the uh, the innovation panel where, where B&D folks got to talk about the, the technologies that excited them. What uh, what your what are your hopes for the next couple of months? Do you feel like we're on the cusp of some uh, some big news for ophthalmology? 
I think so. I think for ophthalmology and I think for gene therapy, which is, um, is I, it, it already is, and I think will continue to be a very disruptive approach to therapeutics, uh, potentially uh, curative or, or at least long-term therapy uh, with many fewer treatments, uh, nominal treatments, if you will. Um, so, yes, Sparks uh date is January 12th. Uh, the advisory committee was incredibly supportive. The results um, look very impressive. Uh, it's taken them. It took them a while to submit. I'm not sure why. Internally, they know. Uh, maybe it was maybe it was uh, manufacturing related, but I'm not sure of that. So that's wild speculation on my part. Maybe they made a press release that I'm unaware of. That being said, the Padufa date is January 12th, and I think everyone is expecting an approval and a and an important advance um, for the patients who have inherited retinal disease, particularly the uh, bi, so-called biallelic RP65 mediated inherited retinal diseases. And, you know, the, to me, the, the interesting thing is, you know, what's behind SPARC. Um, I made the point that there are literally hundreds of gene therapy trials ongoing, um, a, dozen, a dozen or more, and probably two dozen are in ophthalmology. Uh, AGTC has a couple trials that are ongoing that we're sort of very much looking forward to readouts from, not just safety, but whether there are any efficacy signals in excellent retinoschisis and achromatopsia. And then we heard during the day from Nightstar, uh, which has a therapy for choroideremia, and from Genzyte, which has this very, what I thought was a very intriguing uh, set of data for Labor's hereditary optic neuropathy. That would be the first mitochondrial gene therapy. So uh, for gene therapy for mitochondrial disease, which I think could be yet another major advance in the field. So lots going on in gene therapy. Uh, that, so I think it'll be a very exciting time over the next year or two. And, and in dry, I, I had the chance to speak with uh, Rob Dempsey of, of Shire, and we talked about Zydra's global rollout and, and then his approach to doing that. And we'll be having that up on OIS.net, and uh, along with your the video of your presentation that you actually gave at the conference. That's also up there as well. But uh, Shire is clearly uh, blazing a trail with, with dry eye, opening up some avenues. And there's some, some other, uh, I guess, potential rivals or, or I guess other providers of treatment for dry eye, including Kayla Pharma, which uh, seems to have a novel approach. What was your, your feeling about uh, their presentation? Yeah, two points I'll make. First, great to see Shire in ophthalmology, and, and they appear to be doing a great job with Zydra, which is important, important to, to me personally and to us since we were investors in that company, and we, we like to see our company succeed and the products that they, they advance succeed. So uh, thanks to Shire for that. Um, it's also great to see Shire very active in ophthalmology, and they have a couple phase threes going on right now in viral and bacterial conjunctivitis. These are multinational trials. So they're very active, and, and that's great. And um, they have a I, what I think will be a very big big drug with a side or a billion-dollar drug people are projecting. Um, Dry eye is very crowded, and I can remember distinctly when we went into Sarcode, which was acquired by Shire and uh, by Shire and became Zydra, uh, how relatively inactive dry eye was because it was felt to be difficult with the two endpoints and uh, sort of imprecise or unclear, somewhat unclear mechanism. Is it inflammatory? To what extent is it inflammatory? Et cetera, et cetera. Now there are well over a dozen companies in, in various stages that have dry eye um, compounds that they're advancing. One of the more advanced is uh, Kala Pharmaceuticals, which uh, is ad- advancing uh, their uh, lodopredinolol for, for dry eye, and they're specifically going after temporary relief of signs and symptoms. Temporary because we, we don't like to use topical corticosteroids forever, uh, given the sort of cataract and, and pressure risks associated with them. So 
it's a very novel approach uh, to use them sort of in a, in a temporary sense uh, for a week or two to, to treat uh, activity or exacerbations. It'll be very interesting to see how the FDA receives it and and uh, where they can go with that. Um, I don't think they've, they haven't announced the results or they are to come out this quarter. Maybe they know them, but we don't know them yet. Uh, we'll see. Yeah, I think it's a, an interesting and novel approach. We're going to take a quick break from this conversation with Emmett to let you know that the presentations from OISAO are available on video. We'll be sending them out to you shortly. Please uh, keep an eye on your inbox. Keep an eye on your social media channels. Look to the OIS Weekly Newsletter. If you're not already a subscriber, you should do that, and you'll see them coming to you. But uh, we are eager to push out these presentations. They were terrific. We've gotten great reviews, and we look forward to sending them your way. Thank you to everyone who participated. Now let's get back into this conversation with Emmett Cunningham. I spoke with Tom Gaddick as well, who I know had the success with Sarcode and is uh, added again with Tier Solutions. So you're right, there's so much going on in that space. In your, your presentation, you really, what I enjoy about it is you have such a, 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 a meaty representation of each disease state. I almost want to break up the video into, into four or five different ones because I think uh, they all can, could stand alone. And uh, one of the areas you uh, looked at was wet AMD. And uh, there's been some some interesting data there, and I've uh, got some, some, hopefully some positive data coming up with ore pharmaceuticals. What's your uh, overview of what, what AMD area? Well, it's, it's a massive area. It's a big problem. It's, uh, uh, wet AMD is the number one cause of blindness in non-working adults in the developed world, and so you can understand why it's such an important indication. It's also important because we've had major advances with it. The anti-VEGF therapies are really a, a truly disruptive, transformative therapy for wet uh, age-related macular degeneration. I think the, the big news at the meeting, and we it was released actually before OIS or AAO, was the uh, positive, the non-equivalency trial of brolicizumab uh, with, um, with ILEA. So we know that that, that drug is, at least by, as defined by non-equivalency, is, is, a, is a comparable to ILEA. And it was, it's been, was suggested both in the press release and as presented at AAO after OIS that a higher proportion of patients can go to less frequent or every 12-week dosing, uh, which, if true, is meaningful. Uh, we, we recognize that there's a big a burden for patients who are often in their 70s to come to the physician every month or two and then to get injections. And so I think now that the next big uh, sort of breakthrough, if you will, or advance in wet AMD is going to one of them. One of the two is going to be decreasing the treatment burden by extended extended uh, efficacy, either through an improved molecule or through a sustained release. Um, now, I, I, didn't, um, I really didn't understand why such a small molecule, uh, this 26 kilodalton um, small fragment of the variable region, should have a longer duration of activity. I, I was fortunate enough to run into Dominic Escher at the meeting. Uh, you know, we were also early investors in Esbitech, which developed this technology. And I knew Dominic, know Dominic, and had him explain it to me. And what he explained, which even though I was involved with the company for years, I didn't fully appreciate, is that their scaffold, which basically stabilizes this um, this very small fragment, allows them to get a much higher concentration of drug into solution than is normally achievable with a full antibody or a FAB. And so I think I'm, I have the number corrected. It may be 20-fold higher concentration than a, a FAB. And, and that's simply because with 
some biologics, many biologics, when you get to high concentrations, they aggregate. And so you cannot put them into solution like you might a small molecule. Uh, these SCFE fragments, single chain variable fragments, um, are stabilized to such a degree that they do not aggregate at those uh, concentrations. And so you can really push the concentration in. And, and in, in that way, uh, sort of deliver much, much higher concentrations of the, uh, on a molar basis of the anti-VEGF uh, to the eye. So it made sense to me. Um, and again, I'm, I'm happy that it's a, yet another drug that we were able to support to get to uh, this positive phase three status. I know Novartis is very excited about it and kind of view this as a franchise builder. And they too have sort of said um, both openly and to me that they're, they're going to be in a, a franchise building mode looking for other partnerships and assets. So that's great for the field as well. It sure is. And we'll be looking for uh, news from Genentech and Foresight, their latter trial, and uh, you're doing some great work at Graybug as well, correct? Yeah, so a couple other things are on are going and sort of coming up in the near term on what AMD or pharmaceuticals uh, is performing and, and their confirmatory topical squalamine trial for what AMD they had in a subgroup analysis uh, some what appeared to be a benefit, efficacy benefit, and now they're, they're replicating that through a phase, uh, what could be a phase two, three trial. And that, we're told, we'll, we'll read out in January or February. That'll be important. Uh, first topical agent to be advanced. Uh, Panoptica, although they didn't present, chose not to present at the meeting, um, they, they are advancing what could be a second topical anti-VEGF uh, agent. Um, and as you mentioned, then we have uh, turning to a sort of more extended, extended release with the Genentech ladder trial, uh, which we we um, was a technology acquired from Foresight Vision, Foresight Vision Four specifically uh, in and uh, January of last year, and now is advancing. We're expecting that data in 2018. I think it'll be important. That's a, a surgical procedure to put in the reservoir. I think it'll be important to see how much extended release they get. Uh, the more, the better. I was interested to see the um, the ASRS membership survey, which comes out at AAO, uh, American Society of Retinal Surgeons. They, they query about 1,700 of their members, and they asked, you know, if, um, you know, if uh, it took 30 minutes to put in, a, to do a procedure to to get extended release, you know, how how long would it have to last? And I get, my anticipation is that uh, the reservoir would take about 30 minutes. They said it would need to last about six to 12 months. The more, the better, basically. So, you know, often we don't know uh, how surveys and preferences before the fact are going to translate into therapy. But I do think the more they can get, the better. I, th- three months is probably their minimal aspiration. But if they can get to four months or five or six months even, I think it would be better. And to that end, you mentioned Graybug. You know, we're an investor in Graybug, and I have to state that up front. But they are um, they are tracking too from their animal data that sort of six month plus uh, delivery of a of a VEGF inhibitor. They have a small molecule TKI sunitinib, which uh, is in a novel platform delivery platform out of Johns Hopkins uh, University. And so they're they're sort of continuing to push that to six months and beyond. Uh, and then there are, there are others. Ocular Therapeutics is has a, a hydrogel-based platform, which they hope too would get to extended release. So there are other companies that are going after that extended release format. And you also took a look at the state of combination therapies. We've obviously talked a great deal about that on the podcasts and uh, and at past OISs. I don't know if we want to go over the recent uh, setbacks, but but you provide a few a uh, few rays of hope with uh, a couple of promising earlier stage companies. Uh, What are you seeing in there? 
So two points. I mean, the first obvious point is that we had some big failures with uh, Regeneron and Oplitech on the PDGF side. And the question there is why? What's the target offer? Is, the, is it just very hard to show additive therapy? And we don't know. I, yeah, the, the preclinical experiments, the animal models, suggested that PDGF inhibition should be additive, and it didn't really appear to be the case in humans. Um, I think, I want to think it's more of a target issue and that the target didn't translate than it is that we can't provide benefit uh, with add-on therapy. But, um, you know, I should just say that these are complex patients and they often come with scarring or blood or lesions that are variable size, small to medium to large. And so, you know, the, the idea that you can get every one back to 2020 after the fact is probably not realistic. Uh, there is probably a limit to how much add-on therapy we can get. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that we can't have better therapies, and that better may be preemptive. It may be preventative therapy. Um, so, for example, if you had a an anti-VEGF that lasted for a year and was safe and you put it in patients who are at risk of developing wet AMD, those who have dry, for example, um, could you prevent the, the conversion? There there may be some of that there. All that said, I think there were some, some promising rays of hope that even in existing wet AMD, you could have add-on therapy up the uh, they did not re- uh, present at the meeting, but they have presented publicly that they have what I think is a clear drug effect uh, with their um, add-on anti-VEGF-CD uh, uh, and a uh, sort of trap-like molecule. So they that, I think, uh, shows promise. It was a clear drug effect. And interestingly, they, interestingly, they showed that they could get regression of the neovascularization up to 50% of the patients that were treated, the, the naive patients that were treated, very promising. And then Iconic, um, who did present at the meeting, they too showed uh, some evidence of a drug effect uh, with their tissue factor inhibitor, um, both with regard to retinal thickness and durability, that is the number of injections needed. So um, the door is not closed. There are compounds and companies that are showing promising results. And I I think we're going to have another couple huge readouts this year or early next year with both Roche, Genentech, and Regeneron, where they are combining an anti-angiopotent 2 inhibitor uh, with a VEGF inhibitor to look for efficacy with that target. That's a, Again, I think most people would say that is probably the most promising target. It's the most clinically advanced, and we'll see what those results are. They'll be very important for the space. And on dry AMD, we had some uh, failures of the complement inhibitors. Uh, it's, again, seems to have some setbacks there, but once again, you were able to report some some positive news, specifically coming from uh, Apellus, the newly minted public company. What's, uh, what's your overall take of the dry MD area and of Apellis's uh, move forward? Uh, it's a huge market, big uh, unmet need, lots of patients with uh, limited or decreased vision that, that need a ther- therapy to either reverse or potentially slow the um, advance of this disease. You're absolutely right that we've seen uh, now a number of failures. Lampalizumab was the most recent. That's a factor D uh, inhibitor we've had a couple C5 inhibitors that have failed. We've had GSK's um, beta amyloid uh, antibody that failed that, as you know, indirectly inhibits or turns off the complement cascade. And and now here comes Apellus with a C3 uh, inhibitor that showed efficacy. And unlike lampalizumab, where we saw a separation of their phase two curve at month three, this happened at month six and beyond. So, you know, it's... um, I think that the data are the data. You know, it's a po- clearly a positive phase two. When I spoke with the the team there, they were 
very confident that it was positive. They they did lots of sensitivity analyses and, and thought they were all positive. And, and that data supported a public offering at a very good valuation. So the people who scrubbed the data much more than I have clearly thought that it was uh, something worth putting money behind and uh, to support what will be their phase, phase three programs. You know, the question that typically, typically comes up is, you know, why? Why would you have C5 and factor D inhibitors fail in a C3 work? And the point I tried to make, which is a somewhat complicated and perhaps nuanced point, but I tried to make in my very short presentation was that many of the diagrams we see for complement inhibition sort of go to uh, go through C3. They all go, everything goes through C3, but then they go to the sort of lysis or MAC complex, at, which is C5 mediated at, as a final common pathway. And that's a va one valid sort of depiction of the complement cascade, but an equally valid one has not just that one effector arm, so lysis, but three effector arms, the other two being sort of chemotaxis or bringing in immune cells and promoting adaptive immunity so that you can learn to recognize these antigens. And the, the last is coding or opsonization that will mediate phagocytosis of these bad bits that are um, in and around the site of inflammation. And my my guess, and this is what Pellis would say, I think, is that um, that most of what's happening in AMD or maybe maybe related to opsonization and phagocytosis. We know that, that macrophages are very prominent in the uh, histology of these advanced eyes. So maybe it's less of a cell lysis. Uh, this is pure speculation, and, and there are companies still going after C5 that I think would like to think cell lysis and the MAC complex are good targets, but um, we don't know. We'll learn more over time as uh, these, these trials advance. It's, I should just say that genetically, if you look at the sort of genetic studies, complement is very strongly implicated in this condition. And so it should work. We, we hope it'll work. Great. That's a, that's a great overview of the AMD area. Moving into uh, diabetic retinopathy, we were pleased to have both Allegro and Aprio make some uh, intriguing presentations up there on stage. What was your takeaway of uh, of their discussions and what they're up to. Yeah, a few points on diabetes, diabetic macrodema, diabetic retinopathy. The first is that you know the, um, the angiopotin two inhibitors, with, together with VEGF, are going after DME as well. So we we will get some readout on that combination therapy, um, I think, in the near term. And others, I presume, um, Iconic and Apathy, uh, I believe, is has stated they will are, are planning to go after DME. So combination therapy is is alive and well. Uh, it's still unknown, but alive and well in um, DME. So Allegro has what is, could potentially be a first-in-class anti-integrin uh, inhibitor, and they presented results uh, su suggesting uh, what could be uh, enhanced efficacy in patients who have previously received anti-VEGF and, and implicit in that it, it didn't respond completely, so uh, incomplete responders. Um, it was a post-hoc analysis. Uh, the, the CEO did not show the sort of sample sizes that were in each of those groups, and, and it has to be taken in the context of all post-hoc analyses, which are potentially informative but not uh, much less definitive than a prospective trial. But I, I, I do believe that the, the, the integrins and anti-integrins play a role, and uh, it'd be nice to, to see how they decide to advance that, that compound because I think it has a potential therapeutic benefit. Um, back to the angiopotent 2 inhibitors, which is sort of the one aspect of TIE2 activation. If you inhibit angiotensin 2, you activate TIE2. Erpio has the sort of first and only TIE2, direct TIE2 activator. 
which uh, they advanced in a DME study. They saw, I think, a clear drug effect uh, on DME. But what I think they thought was even more impressive and more novel and perhaps a novel path forward was this the effect on um, di- diabetic retinopathy score. And so they now have decided to advance into a phase two confirmatory study of uh, diabetic retinopathy reversal and or uh, decreased progression. Um, and so that too will be will be very interesting. It's a big market. Uh, they have a, uh, a drug that is, needs to be injected twice a day. Uh, that said, diabetics are used to injections. And so I think they would say not a huge issue. And, and by the way, uh, activating TIE 2 is good for vessels generally, maybe not just in the eye. And so they may see other benefits systemically from the systemic administration. So I know that company is excited about it. Um, it'll be interesting to see what, what they find in their ongoing phase two. Terrific. And, and uveitis has been a, a very challenging space. But yet, again, we're seeing progress there. Santan made a, a great presentation. ClearSide has been, been moving forward. Uh, what's your what's your overall feeling about the uveitis space? Uh, you know, it's great to see it act, be active. It's um, the non-infectious uveitis is o- often, although not always, an orphan indication, and so these are patients that historically have not had a lot of drug development uh, coming their way, and so it's great to see that. You did note, and it's true, that there have been lots of failures in the space with the gabapentin, vaclosporin, cyclizumab, et cetera. These are trials that have been advanced all the way to phase three for different approaches to, to inhibiting inflammation, and they all they all failed. I think it's hard. These patients are hard. They're heterogeneous. The endpoints are difficult. Um, you know, but that said, there have been some successes. Ozerdex was approved um, for uveitis. We have Redisert for uveitis, and both of those are steroids, and I think they bode well for the for the, the approval that Civita and ClearSight are seeking with their sustained release approaches to, to uveitis. The the nearest term um, sort of data card, if you will, is the uh, Santan Sakura study, which they've submitted to the FDA for approval, and they have a PDUFA date in, in late December. I think that'll be that'll be somewhat important. That's a, a novel approach with the serolimus implant, not a corticosteroid. Uh, we'll see how that does. I'm, I'm hopeful for them. We'll see. Well, that is a wrap. Emmett Cunningham, thanks so much for the time you put into that presentation, both the uh, the one delivered at OIS, but also this extra bonus material that uh, we're putting out for our OIS community. Folks, uh, do download the uh, presentation if you haven't already. It's uh, chock full of important information that you should have. Please, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. We'll uh, present part two next week where Emmett will uh, identify some of the uh, companies to watch, his own companies to watch. So uh, please do listen in for that. And uh, finally, as I said, we'll be uh, producing content from OIS at AO. It was a great event, a record event. And uh, we've got a lot of great material to share with you. Keep an eye out for the company presentations. All right, tune in next week for another great tale of innovation. This is Tom Salemi with the OIS Podcast, signing off.